Hello and welcome to Desperate Acts of Capitalism, a podcast about money, marketing, and how it all goes wrong. Today, we are going to be talking about the rise and fall of the Sears Corporation. We'll also be talking about the very brief rise and fall of the film production company Image Movers Digital. Enjoy. There's a good boy in this room. Yes. <laughs> He's doing a weird pose. <laughs> All right, welcome to Desperate Acts of Capitalism. Episode one. We don't really have a format for the starting yet, so this is subject to change. The format will develop and evolve as we grow as people. So do you want to go first, or should I go first? Hmm, I don't know. Why don't you go first? All right, all right. So, uh, basically, I started this on Wikipedia, and... the way to do it. Yeah, (laughs) I started this on Wikipedia, but from there I got sent to a bunch of, to many, many articles about the whole subject. Right. And the thing about this is that Sears is quite possibly one of the longest lived corporations in history. Our adventure begins in 1863. Oh, shit. Yeah, just a couple years after the Civil War ended. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Richard Warren Sears was born in Stewartville, <laughs> Minnesota, to a wealthy family, which moved to nearby Spring Valley in 1879. It sounds like a fake name. Richard Sears. <laughs> Richard Sears. That's what he does. He Sears for a living. <laughs> so, Sears' father died shortly after lo- shortly after losing the family fortune in a speculative stock deal. <laughs> so, <laughs> th- that is the first sentence. <laughs> so, basically, uh, the guy who invented it was was born, and then, like, in a pr- fairly wealthy family. I wasn't able to find out, find out how his family got his wealth, uh-huh. but his father died when he was about eight, and... Uh-huh. He, so he grew up basically broke. Yeah. He started a mail-order watch business in Minneapolis in 1886, calling it R.W. Sears Watch Company. Within the first year, he met Alva C. Roebuck, a watch, a watch repairman. Mm. The next year, Sears and Roebuck relocated, to business, relocated their business to Chicago. In 1887, the R.W. Sears and Watch Company published Richard Sears' first mail-order catalog, offering watches, diamonds, jewelry, that sort of thing. Hmm. Now, this is the first instance of the catalog, which, throughout this entire thing, the catalog is what makes Sears. Right. That's their whole thing, especially in these early years. Yeah. This was a very... This was a new concept. Like, it never been done before. No, not really. Like, there were definitely... There were definitely companies that had catalogs, but we'll see what Sears does with this concept. Okay. Like, there were definitely other companies that had catalogs, but Sears Sears was the one, really the first company that made it their thing. Right. They didn't invent it, they revolutionized it. Yeah, Or they yeah. popularized it, I Absolutely. guess. Alright, so, Alva C. Roebuck, who will be here, who will be in the story for a while. Um, so, there's, at this point, they're really just a jewelry and watch company, right? Mm-hmm. So, in 1889, only two years later after starting it, they sold the business for $100,000, which in today's money is $2.8 million. Oh my gosh. It was incredibly successful and yeah. then relocated to Iowa. Uh, oh, no, no, no. The company wasn't relocated to Iowa. Uh, Sears relocated to Iowa, intending to be a rural banker. <laughs> That's enough of that. Yeah. So, before the Sears catalog, 
Farmers near small rural towns, they purchase supplies at very high prices and usually on credit from local general stores with very narrow selections of goods. Right. Okay. You know, this a general store is one guy who's like making all the tools himself. Right. It's like a family business. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. So Sears... T- um, burr, 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 burr. And they, they didn't have set prices, mm-hmm. right? It was basically oh. you just you just bartered with the guy right. for whatever he wanted to sell you this rake for. So Sears saw this enormous section of rural America as a huge business opportunity. And this is where the catalog comes back. Mm. So you've got this catalog that they would send to every single household they could. And... You've got set prices. You've got every tool mm. you could ever need. It's all through the mail, and all you have to and the cost of, like, just the cost of mailing it back with what you want. Yeah. You know, it's pennies. It's right. incredibly cheap. So it makes everything cheaper and easier for everyone and faster. It's right. Way more easier. efficient. And because and because there's set prices, you don't have people didn't have to buy stuff on credit nearly as mm. much, which was a huge thing. Right. Du-du-du-du-du. Publishing the catalog. Okay, so, and this, this is stupidly successful. They started. They start selling things like sewing machines, bicycles, sporting goods, automobiles, even. Wow. Which through a catalog. That's crazy. Yeah. No, for selling ca- selling cars to poor Midwestern families. Right. Which, um, at the, uh, I did. I didn't want to go into this because it was like a whole separate story. Yeah. But they basically partnered with the early Lincoln Automobile Company, mm-hmm. which was. Uh, Henry Ford's biggest competitor. Oh, wow. And so this, like, this Sears catalog is what made the Lincoln auto manufacturer. Wow. That partnership is part of why they're such a huge name. Like, part of the reason I'm starting in in 1886 here Mm -hmm. is because you need to realize how big Sears was. It wasn't, like, what we think of Sears now... It's, it's nothing compared to what it was. This was a cornerstone yeah. of global capitalism. Right. So, despite the strong, uh, the strong and growing sales, the National Panic of 1893 led to a full-scale recession, causing a crash squeeze and large quantities of unsold merchandise in 1895. Hmm. The current CEO, wrote a man named Roebuck, decided to quit, returning later in a publicity role. Sears offered Robux half of the company to the Chicago businessman Aaron Nussbaum, Nussbaum, <laughs> Nussbaum, Nussbaum, who in turn brought his brother-in-law Julius Rosenwald, to whom Sears owed money. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, pretty pretty easy way to get a position at the company. Yeah, <laughs> if the uh, previous CEO owes you a buttload yeah. of money. <laughs> so, basically. Um, what Rosenwald brought to the mail order firm was a very rational management philosophy, diversified product lines. They started introducing food, dry goods, consumer, uh, consumer durables, drugs, hardware, furniture, nearly anything a farmhouse could desire. Right. So it's not just stuff for your farm anymore. It's stuff it's for it's like lifestyle stuff. Right. Which right? is anything anyone would want. Right. It's every product imaginable. Well, and so what you've got here is a single catalog where you buy everything from. Right. You know, you don't have you don't have to take a wagon train down to the general store exactly. anymore. Exactly. <laughs> it comes shit comes in the mail. It's like people who can just live on Amazon now. Oh, absolutely. Like is that equivalent. How we think of Amazon now, this is what Sears was like in the in the turn of the century. Wow. I never thought about they that. They were as they were as big. 
That's crazy. With with similar like ratios of wealth. Right. You know. Okay. In 1907, under Rosenwald's leadership as vice president and treasurer, annual sales of the company climbed to roughly 50 million, which in current money is 1.3 billion dollars. Oh that was annual sales. Annual sales, at meaning every year. Right. That's and that's that is at its peak though. Uh, Sears resigned the presidency in 1908 due to his declining health, with Rosenwald named president and chairman of the board, and then taking on full control. Hmm. So. Uh, that recession the com- that was just the first one we will see sears go through many depressions right well they've been a lot been around for so long yeah like absolutely the great depression <laughs> the company was very badly hurt during this one yeah and but even more so the nation's farmers were hurt right right like the the poorest people were were basically the most affected during the great depression who also happened to be sears biggest uh customer base right so this Mm. the great depression hit sears very hard yeah much harder than a lot of other companies at the time right but in response to this to essentially bail the company out rosenwald himself pledged 21 million dollars which is 0.3 billion today of his personal wealth (laughs) he like he bailed it out himself which is not something which is not something that you see many ceos doing today yeah no one does that now no and by all by every account that I've managed to that I've managed to find, Rosenwald was a very practical businessman, but he was a mm-hmm. a fairly kind person. Right. And would t- and whenever troubles like this would arise in the company, he would take it very personally. Right. Right. And if he has the means to fix it, he just would. And exactly. Instead of being like, I'm out of here. <laughs> take my money. Right. Whatever. I have, you know, $0.3 billion to spend just Which here. is what any rational person would do if exactly. you have $0.3 billion. Right. What the hell are you going to buy with that? Yeah. Okay. So in 1933, uh, Sears is, uh, Sears is managing to recover from the, the whole Great Depression. Uh-huh. And in 1933... Sears issues the first of its Christmas catalogs, known as the Sears Wish Book. Mm. This one includes stuff like toys, gifts, you know, dolls, bicycles for right. kids, right? Seasonal stuff. Well, specifically, specifically stuff for children. Right. That's what you want to look at here, okay. because what this was was a marketing technique. Right. Right. So now you've got an entire generation of children that are associating the Sears catalog with all the shit they get for Christmas. Right. This is ma- what this does is it makes Sears Santa Claus. Right. You know, <laughs> Sears Santa Claus, is... but real. Right. No, it's because that's exactly what it is. It's Sears is where Santa like gets all of his shit from. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's his distribution arm. Right. Well, and um, this is a little bit. Bef- this is before they set up their major retail points, but. During the holidays, they would have Santa show up at Sears, and that was, like, where Santa showed up. That's where he lives. Yeah, he lives at Sears. (laughs) They keep him in the basement all year. (laughs) Let me out, please. (laughs) Uh, So this this Sears wish book, which had all the kid stuff in it, was separate from the, uh, the Christmas catalog, which, at this point, the Christmas catalog had stuff like, I mean... It's getting kind of crazy, the stuff that Sears yeah. sells in the catalog now. Um, one of the things that they added around this time was uh, ready-to-assemble kit houses. Oh, my gosh. You could buy an entire house through the Sears catalog. <laughs> That's crazy. So, around this time, this is when, like, we're, we're just creeping into the 50s. And mm-hmm. so this, 
this sort of like big retail marketing is becoming a huge deal. Right. And at the time, the Sears catalog was known in the industry as the consumer Bible. <laughs> you know, novelists and story writers often portrayed the importance of the catalog in the emotional lives of rural folk. This catalog right. also entered the uh, the language, particularly of rural dwellers, as a euphemism for toilet paper, <laughs> as its pages could be torn out and used as such. <laughs> Use every part of the buffalo. <laughs> order, order everything you need on Sears and then on the Sears catalog, and then use the catalog itself it's as the to... circle of life. <laughs> and can, it it's also edible. <laughs> now with edible potato paper, From birth till death. <laughs> But again, like we're joking, but this yeah. is how ingrained the Sears catalog was in in people's lives. Right. Again, it's like Amazon for us today. Exactly. Except probably even more so. Right. And and a huge thing that really can't be overlooked here mm -hmm. is how like is how important the Sears catalog was to black families at the times. Mm. It was. Oh, he's just yawning. <laughs> um. It was how important the Sears catalog was to black families at the time. Mm -hmm. Like, many, many black people at the time were quoted as saying that the Sears catalog was the best thing to happen to black people in America. Wow. Because what this allowed, like, so, you know, white people had to hitch up the donkey train and, you know, spend three days walking through the hills to get to the nearest general store. Yeah. Well, you know, black families had to do that, too. But then the person, like, the guy running the general store who got to decide all the prices... Right. ...would, would just be a racist asshole. Yeah. And would either, would either refuse to sell you stuff or would... Charge you three times the price or whatever. Not just that. They would sell it to you on ridiculous credit. Right. Which would essentially indebt you to this guy for the rest of right. your life. <laughs> right. It's, it, was, it was a component of sharecropping. Right. Like, and and all that uh, all that de facto all that de facto slavery stuff that followed right. that followed emancipation. You just want to go to the store to buy twine or whatever, and you end up like an indentured servant. Literally, to the... that that would happen. <laughs> and the racist store owner. Exactly. And so now you've got just this shit that comes in the mail, and then you can, as a black family, you can order whatever the hell you want. Right. For a set price. Right. For a set price, it gives it gives it gave uh, black farmers like access to all of the means of production that they needed mm. you know that was because that was a huge part of the that was a huge part of the jim crow south was controlling things like uh the sale of farm implements it's like you can't right. do, you can't even make your living without going through this this class that controls you wow so that an enormous effect yeah all right all right all right so, the mail-order market was based on rural America with a very slow-growing population, far less spending power than urban America. Uh, the new CEO, uh, Rosenwald, uh, decided to shift emphasis to urban America mm -hmm. and brought in uh, a Mr. Robert E. Wood to take charge. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you look at his picture on Wikipedia, he's wearing a uh, very tight military uniform <laughs> as... Uh, Wood was a key financial backer in the of the America First Committee, a famously xenophobic isolationist anti-war group. <laughs> nice. Uh, not not quite a Nazi, but right. he like he would have voted for the border wall. Yeah, that kind of guy. <laughs> so this introduces the first Sears retail stores, which were opened in conjunction with the company's mail order offices. 
typically in working class neighborhoods far from the main shopping center. Right. Uh, Sears was a pioneer in creating department stores that catered to men as well as women, which is right. only really mentioned in a single sentence here, mm-hmm. but that was an enormous, another enormous part yeah. of, that was another enormous part of consumer culture. Yeah. Because one of the major things that you're seeing at this time in American consumer culture is this sort of, like, we're, ever since the 1850s, we've been moving away from uh, handmade goods and into factory production stuff. Right. But now, and so now it's like, you're just making shoes. They're not necessarily men's or women's shoes. They're just shoes. Yeah. Right? And uh, and now, Sears is this is this massive store where men and women are shopping together. Right. And they can both get things. Yeah. Right. Which <laughs> Doubles is... your uh, audience. Shh. Hush. Good boy. Good boy. Hush. All right. Hey, hush. All right. It's, uh, it's stores were oriented to motorists, right? So Amer- Americans have cars now. Right. Nobody was really marketing to motorists. That's a new thing. Right. They've got parking lots. <laughs> I love parking lots. <laughs> Not gonna lie, I love parking lots. <laughs> Finally, we get to the parking lot. <laughs> yeah. um, so, in the 1930s, the company designed the first fully air-conditioned windowless stores, whose layout was driven wholly by merchandising concerns. Oh God! Right. So this wasn't this wasn't like a boutique or just like someone's house. They built. They were the first people to build those big air-conditioned like right. warehouses that we think of, like. These were these were the ancestors of the modern shopping malls. Wow. So, 1920s to the 1950s, Sears is expanding the hell out of itself. Mm-hmm. They built a ton of urban department stores in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, and expanded into those countries as well, which mm-hmm. are a whole separate thing. Right. <laughs> uh, they vastly overshadowed the like, and all this retail stuff vastly overshadows the mail order business Mm. right it's way more profitable oh wow starting at about 1950 the company expanded into suburban markets malls in like the advent of the shopping mall in about 1960 and 1970 Mm -hmm. 1959 it formed the homart development company for developing malls many of the company's stores had undergone major renovations or replacements in the 19 in the 1980s uh, Sears began to diversify in the 1930s, creating, among other things, and uh, get ready for this, <laughs> the Allstate Insurance Company, <laughs> uh, the several hardware brands such as Kenmore, Craftsman, Diehard, Silvertone, Supertone, Toughskins. <sighs> they became they became a marketing conglomerate, uh, adding adding uh, a Mr. Dean Whittier and Caldwell Banker. That's his real name. Uh, <laughs> Wait, that's a real name? Yes, his name was Caldwell Banker. <laughs> it's um, even like a stupid name for a bank, mm-hmm. for a person. Which uh, Dean Whittier and Caldwell Banker owned one of the largest real estate firms at the time, mm. bringing, Sears, bringing the Sears conglomerate into the real estate business. Um, as well as starting, as starting Progeny, which was a, uh, a basically Sears-funded joint venture into the early stages of IBM. Oh my gosh. Uh, and then at this point, they, and then in late 1984, they introduced the Discover Credit Card Company. All of these things are owned by Sears. Oh my gosh. Every, That's like, terrifying. All of these things that are, all of these things that we still think of now, yeah. owned by the Sears Corporation. Right. And those are all staples of our like society in right. themselves well so this this is sears at its peak right, right. we've hit 1985 right 
Sears has basically ridden that massive consumerist wave mm. from around 1940 all the way through 1985. Right. And Sears has been Sears has been the surfer at the top of that yeah, wave. Yeah, right. He's Patrick Swayze in uh, what's that movie? Point Break. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly that's exactly how it works. Except <laughs> if the the wave was made of money. All right. So. This is, again, Sears at its peak. Mm -hmm. In 1974, Sears completed the 110-story Sears Tower in Chicago, which was, at the time, the world's tallest building, a title it took from the former World Trade Center Towers in New York. Sears moved to the New Prairie Prairie Stone Business Park in Hoffman. This is the original Sears, who who owned the company back in 1886. He's uh, extremely old at this yeah. point. All right. So at this point, um, they bring in the CEO, Arthur C. Martinez, a former CEO of C- uh, the current former CEO of Sears, who is best known as the person who saved Sears, uh, specifically mm. the Sears Roebuck and Company. Right. Mm. Prior to joining Sears. Martinez worked for several companies, including RCA Records. He entered the retail business in 1980 when he became the chief financial officer, the chief financial officer for Saks Fifth Avenue, the investment company. Wow. In 1992, Martinez became the head of the Sears Merchandising Group, and three years later, he became the chief executive officer for Sears Roebuck and Company. During his eight-year tenure at Sears, Martinez initiated a major overhaul of the company's operations and made the company ve- essentially made the company very profitable again nice right this is this is just after that little uh this is just after that minor uh drop in the 1980s mm-hmm. in the 1980s economy right uh so martinez lasted from about 1992 to 2000 after which this guy named Luis d'ambrosio took over in 2001 uh, but he was pretty uneventful. Didn't really do much. <laughs> Who cares about him? Whatever. <laughs> well, the thing is, is that D'Ambrosio was kind of a uh, D'Ambrosio was kind of an emergency guy. Like mm. they, he was just sort of next in line. Right. Because what I'm going to get into next is the uh, the title of this section is labeled in my notes uh, the first big scandal. Oh no, the first. Yes. Of several, hopefully. Oh yes. We're getting into the fun parts. <laughs> okay. So. It is 1990. A series of pricing scandals were revealed. California successfully sued uh, successfully sued Sears in 1992 for falsely finding things wrong with automobiles in for repair in the Sears repair shops. Right. Oh, so just like tricking people and giving them more money. By yeah, yeah. There's problems that they weren't. Yeah, a guy looks at your car, comes back. You know, maybe there's only $300 worth of damage. He says there's $1,400 worth of right. damage. Okay. Right? Scumbags. Now, scumbags. <laughs> well, one, this has been a common scam in auto shops since auto shops were a thing. Right. Um, it wasn't the fault of the Sears Corporation. Mm. Like, they, this wasn't like a conspiracy that they started at the top. Right. It's just know? what mechanics do. Right. Generally. It, from, what it's, from what it seems like, I read a... Uh, Newsweek had a fantastic article on this entire scandal, just okay. on this scandal. Nice. From what it seemed like, uh, I'll, I'll definitely get into it later, mm-hmm. but it was basically the managers of these auto shops were 
because of the the culture of the middle management it was very bad to report problems upstream right you didn't want to there was no your... incentive to well, report it, it was actively disincentivized like right. if there were if there were problems under your watch that meant trouble for you okay right yeah and so a lot of a lot of the managers who are responsible for you know calling out stuff like this didn't really want to open their mouths right, right? or tried or tried to solve it without raising a fuss right because they'll be punished if yeah. they say that their you know unit is doing poorly mm -hmm. so 1997 criminal charges were made so this this is a quote from the the newsweek article that mm -hmm. i was talking about it is not easy to dis to digest a disaster at 8.30 a.m. on a Sunday, sitting with his top executives at a conference table in Chicago on a spring morning, Arthur C. Martinez was in shock. His lawyers used overhead slides to explain how employees at Sears and Roebuck Company, the once moribund company he'd worked <laughs> so hard to revive, mm -hmm. had secretly violated federal law for a decade. Ooh. Their actions, which had been exposed by a bankruptcy judge in Boston, were about to erupt into a nationwide scandal. Wow. Already in the U.S. Justice Department was weighing, was weighing not just on civil penalties, but criminal prosecution. Oh, man. Worse, this wasn't just a rogue operation or an honest misinterpretation of the law. Sears appeared to have been violating the rights of some credit holders systematically and intentionally. Because mm. that's, that's why this turned into a massive scandal. Like uh -huh. some auto shops, that's whatever. Yeah. But... In the investigation into the auto shop stuff, yeah. what this revealed was, like, at this point, Sears still owns uh, the Discover Card Company. Mm -hmm. And what it turns out was a large a large section of their uh, their credit card, like, their, their credit card department uh -huh. was intentionally defrauding people. Oh. They weren't even looking for this. This right. just came up <laughs> in the investigation. <laughs> This is much bigger than we thought. Yeah, yeah. And so, and this article goes on to describe, like, so the CEO at the time, Martinez, had basically spent most of the 70s and 80s mm -hmm. uh, basically turning Sears around, making it profitable, like, making it profitable again. Yeah. Um, and he was doing a fantastic job. And so he gets this news, and his reaction was just sort of, oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Like, like, he didn't even know about it. It's had just been going on. Yeah, he didn't. <laughs> so sad. Uh, yeah, it, like, here's a quote. Here's a quote. <laughs> uh, the company the lawyers were suggesting may have even put the illegal practice into its procedures manual. How oh, such no. a wrongdoing could have gotten started and how, it could have, how could it have gone unchecked for several years? Martinez wanted to know. Mm -hmm. This is a quote from him. Not one phone call about this? <laughs> ever? It's <laughs> <laughs> so sassy. Yeah. Well, it's it's just it's like you didn't call me? Yeah. Like <laughs> you could have told me I would have fixed it. Yeah, I I I wanted to know. I'm not mad, just disappointed. That that was the the that was how he talked about this. Poor Martinez. After his best. After a 22-month investigation, a Sears subsidiary agreed to plead guilty to a criminal, char criminal charge of bankruptcy fraud and to pay the government a stunning $60 million, which wow. compared, which honestly compared to what we've seen in the past, not that much. Right. It's more like a slap on the wrist. Yeah. It, very like much a, so. a punch on the wrist. Yeah. Nothing more. Well, the, 
the the fraud charges were not the were not the real hit here. This right. was a very public scandal for Sears, and mm. it really damaged their uh, their their public image. Right. You know. At four fifteen p.m. on April 9th, a cryptic email message flashed onto the screens at Prairie Stone. <laughs> it summoned Sears' top two hundred executives, the then so-called Phoenix Team, to an <laughs> Phoenix ur- Team assemble Phoenix Team <laughs> to an urgent meeting at eight at eight a.m. the next morning. As Martinez explained, Sears' serious breach of the law says Seriousness. one one attendee is quoted as saying. Arthur was not angry, but very sad. (laughs) (laughs) I just joked about that. It's actually true. (laughs) The costs, he said, were incalculable. We've rebuilt our customers' trust and confidence in this company brick by brick, he said. (laughs) And now all of that's been bulldozed. (laughs) Martinez is proud of the ethics office and other integrity initiatives he launched after he joined Sears. We set a tone at the top, he said. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but in the early but in the early 1990s Martinez also oversaw the extension of credit cards to 17 million new customers. Wow. That's about 5 million more than this than Sears might routinely have added. Wow. Credit by itself was a big business at the time. Yeah. Last year the company earned 50% of its operating income Jeez. from credit, including charge including charge cards held by more than half of the US households. Charge wow. cards being essentially like the Sears membership cards because mm. everyone was still buying stuff through the Sears yeah. catalog. Right. And so you you paid for all that with your Sears card, mm. right? 50% of their sales. And turns out that whoever was whoever was running this had been defrauding people, right? <laughs> right. This thing that you essentially use to buy damn near everything in your home. Right. So that could have like totally ruined Sears. It it was like I I read a lot of articles based on like could Sears have survived this, mm-hmm. and by all accounts they could, they right. really could have survived this. Martinez was a very competent CEO. Yeah, right. You know, I mean, I'm not exactly fond of CEOs, but he was damn good at his job. Yeah, exactly. Right, like Sears totally could have survived this, mm-hmm. but what seems to be what seems to be the real thorn in their side, like the thing that really truly killed them in the end Mm -hmm. was Sears like Sears just got too big too fast and they had too many levels to their management Mm -hmm. like if Martinez made an order Mm -hmm. he was very good at like general operation stuff like how we should expand you know how they should manage the money but in terms of like the people running individual departments and Mm -hmm because at this point they're so widespread. Right. It was very easy for orders to get muddled coming down the line. Right. Right. That was that was the real thing that that crippled them. Like an enormous game of telephone. Yeah, it, it's exactly the same concept. So, as like so, the we've got the the 1990 market crash, mm-hmm. right? At this at this point in history, uh, bankruptcies nation the number of bankruptcies nationwide mushroomed and so did the mm. number of unpaid accounts at Sears by 1997 mm. more than one third of all personal personal bankruptcies in the United States included Sears as a oh creditor gosh. wow think about that yeah that's there there aren't even credit companies that big anymore right so how does Sears respond to all of this 
this this section up here I've titled shedding the dead weight so remember remember all of those all of those things that I said Sears owned mm-hmm. like the, the discover credit card corporation right all of those tool companies and tool yeah. manufacturers well so in the 1990s the company began divesting itself of many of its non-retail entities which mm-hmm. were detrimental to the company's bottom line so a lot of that's a lot of that shit had to go right because what Sears needed at this point was cash yeah right everything this was a huge failure of the credit industry mm-hmm. and so the most valuable thing that you could have as a company was cold hard cash right so they started liquidating hmm. or just selling shit off yeah so uh discover card one of the first things to go mm. obviously yeah <laughs> um a uh, uh, they sold its mall building subsidiary to Homeart and General Growth Properties. Sears wow. later acquired the hardware chain Orchard Supply Hardware and uh, basically worked that into Sears. Right. Uh, and it eventually became the subsidiary known as the Great Indoors, <laughs> which was, at least during the past 20 years, a like a fairly large part of Sears' actual profits. Right. Oh, Some tools. Do, do, do. In 1993, Sears terminated its general merchandise catalog because of the sinking sales and profit. Mm. In 1997, 85% of its Mexico affiliate... They sold 85% of its Mexico affiliate to Grupo Carso. Grupo Carso. Carso. Sears Holdings continues to produce specialty catalogs and reintroduced a smaller version of the Holiday Wish Book in 2007 and 2003. Mm. But that Sears catalog that had made them so famous over the past... 130 years yeah that's gone now wow it's been split up into several smaller catalogs specialty catalogs that's that changes everything it's it's not necessarily it didn't necessarily kill them but it's one the it's like we're starting the decline here right they're a much smaller business now they're they're having to they're having to essentially divide themselves up like if you know anything about history yeah it's like the like the end of the Ottoman Empire, mm-hmm. like it's like people are just sort of taking bites out of it, right? right? That's what's happening to Sears right mm. now. Whoop, my phone turned off. All right, the remaining credit card operations were sold to J.P. Morgan Chase in August of 2005. In 2003, Sears opened a new concept store called Sears Grand. Oh no, Sears Grand stores carried everything that a regular Sears carried and more <laughs> but grander <laughs> but grander Sears Grand Sears Grand stores are about uh, 75,000 to 225,000 square feet almost oh. double that of a normal Sears oh no this next behemoths yeah, they're colossal yeah so uh, on November 17th 2004 Kmart Holdings Corporation announced that it was going to acquire Sears and Roebuck Company for $11 billion <laughs> after Kmart completed its bankruptcy. USA Today, November 7, November 17, 2004. As, oh, that was just where I got that. Never mind. <laughs> as a part of the acquisition, Kmart Holding Corporation, along with Sears and Roebuck Company, was transformed into the brand new Sears Holding Corporation. So... One thing I think I deleted from one of the earlier sections mm-hmm. was Sears was one of the biggest companies on earth during the invention of the stock of the New York Stock Exchange. Wow. So, you know how you know how corporations have uh 
like little abbreviations, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, like Nasdaq. Yeah. Right. That's that's an abbreviation for a lo- for a much larger conglomerate. Right. So. Sears got in early on this, mm-hmm. so you know what you know what their abbreviation was. Sears, no, S. <laughs> they got the letter S. <laughs> like that's that's how early they yeah. were into the stock exchange game. <laughs> we are S. Well, they were, they were, they were so early on this that they got just the letter S, right. and everyone everyone in the stock trading world, like that was a huge that was a huge thing. Mm-hmm. It was like. It was like this badge of honor, right. right? So, this this merger with Kmart, mm-hmm. eventually, basically, it changed the Sears and Roebuck company into the Sears Holding Corporation, which, uh, because it changed its name, it had to change its uh, its symbol on the Nasdaq to SHLD. Aww. So they they lost that iconic S. Oh. Yeah. Oh no. Uh, <laughs> Which uh, they turns out they lo- they lost it to the Sear- they lost it to uh, the Sprint Corporation. Oh, <laughs> thank you, Sprint. So now now Sprint is S, even though they got it, even though they only got it in 1990. <laughs> That's just cheap. Right, right. <laughs> like, oh, we've got the S now. It's like, no, you got it fucking 20 years yeah. ago. You fucking posers. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right. So. The company's profits peaked at $1.5 billion annually in 2006. Mm. By 2010, the company was no longer profitable. Wow. From 2011 to 2016, the company lost $10.4 billion. Oh my goodness. In 2014, its total debt, $4.2 billion at the end of January in 2017, exceeded its market capitalization of... Uh, Nine million seven hundred and wait, 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 wait. Nine hundred and seventy-four point one million dollars. Right. So that the peak for Sears, one point five billion dollars annually. Right. Right. So at the time, we've still got Arthur C. Ma- we've still got Arthur C. Martinez, mm-hmm. but uh, he eventually he eventually leaves. Yeah. So it's time. It's time to get into the real fun part. <laughs> And the uh, the man who essentially inspired this podcast. <laughs> I want you to meet a man named Eddie Lampert. <laughs> In January of 2013, it was announced that Lampert would take over as chief executive officer at Sears after Luis D'Ambrosio stepped down due to family health matters. Right. Or whatever. Or whatever. Who cares? <laughs> Nobody cares about D'Ambrosio. Yeah. Uh, do, 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 do. So, in July of 2016, he... Uh, Mr. Lampert held uh, approximately 28% of the Sears Holding Corps worth approximately uh, $408 million. Mm -hmm. He has been strongly criticized by employees and corporate staff alike for shredding his employees in corporate meetings and being, quote, out of touch with reality, (laughs) as well as as well as for failing to invest in the physical stores as many of them are completely deteriorating. (laughs) Those are not good things to say about your CEO. Oh, just you wait. <laughs> uh, this next this next section is titled "A Huge Mistake." Oh, no. Sears stated that the company was looking to focus on becoming a more tech-driven retailer. Oh boy. Sears CEO Eddie Lampert, as top shareholder, said he 
uh, said the sell-off assets in the last year he had given up. Blah, blah, blah. Hula, hula. Said that the sell-off key, the sell-off key assets in the last year he had given had given the retailer the money it needed to speed up its transformation into this new tech-driven retailer. <laughs> tech-driven retailer. <laughs> Talk about a guy S- out of touch. Sears spent much of 2014 and 2015 selling off portions of its balance sheet, namely Land's End and its stake in Sears Canada, one of the biggest e-commerce players in Canada. <laughs> so, Eddie Lampert... In his desire to change Sears into a more tech-driven retailer, <laughs> sold off a $505 million e-commerce section. Its largest internet connect... Like He doesn't even know what tech is. No! It's like, this decision is insane. Yeah. It's And as we go through this, we will realize that Eddie does not know what tech-driven retailer means. Right. It, like... Eddie Lampert does not understand what the internet is. Right. <laughs> he saw his grandson, like, on the computer once and said, like, what are you playing? Oh, He's there's like, the a internet. Quote, there's a quote later. Just okay. wait. Just wait. Great. Okay. <laughs> uh, this next section is titled, More Good Work from Eddie Boy. <laughs> Lampert also concluded in an arrangement that sold the Craftsman brand to Stanley Black & Decker for approximately $900 million. Mm-hmm. During this period, the company also announced that it would close 150 stores, Ugh. 109 Kmart, and... Uh, 41 Sears outlets in an attempt to cut its losses after a decline in sales of almost 12 to 13 percent during just one holiday shopping season. The (laughs) largest quarter, its largest quarterly loss ever. Oh my goodness. Matt McGinley, an analyst at Evercore ISI, stated, in the long run, the cash isn't likely to change the company's course. I don't think there's any viable path to any sort of profitability. (laughs) It's a doom sentence right there. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so this next section is basically copy-pasted from Wikipedia, nice. and it was titled, Further Decline and Bankruptcy. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> in October of 2017, Sears and appliance manufacturer Whirlpool Corporation ended their 101-year-old association, Aww. whereby Whirlpool appliances were sold at Sears and later Kmart stores. The companies reportedly were unable to come to an agreement about pricing issues, Whirlpool would continue supplying the Kenmore-branded appliances that they made for Sears, another wave of six of 63 store closures, including 18, including 18 Sears outlet stores, was announced for November of 2017. The retailer declined to run television advertisements for the 2017 holiday season, citing a desire to focus on online advertising. <laughs> the retailer, Good idea. Oh, yeah. The retailer announced several waves of store closures throughout 2018. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. All the stores are closing. Here are the details. 103 stores, including Sears in January. 63 stores, including 48 Sears in May, including the last Sears store in Montana in Billings. The last Sears store in North Dakota in Grand Forks. The last Sears store in in South Dakota in Sioux Falls. 15 stores, including 6 Sears in July, 46 stores, including 33 Sears in August, with the last Utah store in West Jordan, 142 stores, including 79 Sears in October, with the last Wyoming store in Casper, 40 stores, including 29 Sears in November, the last in Idaho, in Idaho Falls, the last Mississippi stores in Meriden and Tulepo. 80 stores, including 43 Sears in December, all set to close by March of 2019. What? Shh! Hey. 
This next section is titled, Treating Employees Like Garbage. <laughs> Sears has struggled with employee relations. Hey, shush! Shh! Well, Sears has struggled with employee relations. Yeah. To say I the least. <laughs> One notable example was from the shift in 1992 from an hourly wage based based on longevity to a to a single base wage, usually between three three fifty and six dollars per hour. Not great. Yeah. And commissions ranging from eleven percent to a resounding point five percent. Sears. If you sell a twenty dollar toaster, you get, you get you get fifty what? cents. Yeah. <laughs> you get fifty cents. <laughs> Sears claimed the new base wage, often constituting to a substantial up to forty percent cut in pay, was done to be successful in this highly competitive environment. <laughs> Hold on, I have a sound clip to play. Oh. Well, let's get a better. You can add it in editing. <laughs> yeah. This is a uh, Lambert. <laughs> That's all I have. Oh my god. In early October of 2007, Sears cut commission rates for employees in select departments to anywhere from half a percent to four percent, but equalized the base wage across all home improvement and electronics department. Basically, what they did, basically what they did during this era, was they 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 bottomed out everyone's wages as mm. low as they could go, but then gave them like one point five percent higher uh, sales commissions. Right, which really isn't much. It's, it's nothing. Yeah, and no one's coming to the stores anyway and buying stuff, so you're not going to get any commission. Mm -hmm. So they're just cutting your wage. That's all they're doing. So this is this is from an absolutely like sad but hilarious article by uh, Haley Peterson. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> One morning in late 2015, on Sears' vast Illinois campus, more than a dozen employees huddled into a video conference room on a floor dubbed B6. There, two mid-level employees were preparing for a presentation for the CEO, Eddie Lampert, when mm -hmm. their boss rushed in with some last-minute advice. On a chart pad, he wrote three words. He looks at the presenters and says, do not say these three words to that guy. According to a former Sears executive who described the meeting to Business Insider, that guy meant Lampert, mm -hmm. who would soon appear on the giant projector screen in front of the room, <laughs> beamed, in, beamed in live from a home office inside a $38 million Florida estate, of course. 1,400 miles away from the headquarters. Why does he live in Florida, of all places? He lives on this. He lives on this island just off of the Florida Keys. That's literally known as like this the billionaire bunker. Right. <laughs> it has like its own private army and stuff. Oh my gosh. The pad with the three words was out of sight of Lampert's video feed. One of the words on it was consumer. The stakes were high. If any of those words were uttered in front of Lampert, the two presenters would get shredded by the CEO. That's in quotes because people said it a lot. Right whose frequent tirades had fostered a climate of fear among the company's <laughs> most good. senior managers. Always good. <laughs> a climate of fear. Climate, yeah, exactly what the you The Eddie Lampert story. <laughs> These two and other executives say consumer can trigger Lampert. <laughs> <laughs> Goes into a blind rage. <laughs> 
He wants employees to be ref- to instead refer to shoppers as members, which is his term <laughs> for customers who are enrolled in Sears Shop Your Way Rewards program. <laughs> it was at that moment, as the executive attending the meeting watched his fellow employees anxiously censor themselves in front of Lampert, that he realized he needed to flee the sinking <laughs> 123-year-old company. I need to get out of here. <laughs> It's so cinematic. Yeah. Let's get into Lampert. Okay. A former Wall Street prodigy took control Mm. of Sears more than a decade ago and became its CEO in 2013. He's rarely seen in the office, typically visiting about once a year from shareholder... For the shareholder meeting and projecting into video conferencing rooms at the Sears Hoffman Estates in Illinois, their headquarters at the time. Right. According to interviews with employees, he prefers to stay on Indian Creek Island off the coast of Miami behind a desk dressed up with the Sears logo. The island has been dubbed the Billionaire Bunker, <laughs> the partly mini. because of the private police force that protects the <laughs> island's 86 <laughs> residents. <laughs> this is a quote. The only, way you, the only way you see Eddie is through a screen, one former executive told Business Insider. We used to joke about who had to go upstairs and get fixed to see Oz. It's like the Emperor in Star Wars. Literally. He's like a cartoon character. You have failed me. <laughs> Imagine the Emperor, but if you ever but like if you ever said the word rebels to him, he would like start crying yeah. and yell at you for forty five minutes. Right. <laughs> Lambert's physical absence might have been better received if Sears, which also owns Kmart, was in better shape. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably. But the retailer, famous for selling everything from shoes to vacuum cleaners to whole houses, is facing its biggest crisis ever. It's closing hundreds of stores. Others are in shambles with leaking ceilings and broken escalators. (laughs) In some, employees would hang bedsheets to shield... would, would hang bedsheets to shield shoppers from sections that stood completely empty. Oh my gosh. They That's would terrifying. They would literally cover unused sections of the store yeah. by just like hanging bed sheets, <laughs> like curtains, right. like nothing to see here. Right. <laughs> the employees who spoke to Business Insider describe an in, an internal mess with a revolving door of executives and low morale. Senior executives say that Lampert had cut investments in stores because he's trying to turn it into a tech company that collects and sells customer data through its Shop Your Way program. Which, the Shop Your Way program was, like, Lampert talks about it as being this, like, new age tech thing. It's, It's just a shopper credit card. Yeah. It's... It's a member. It's a membership card. It's yeah. something that has existed for fifty right. years at this point. <laughs> yeah, because Lampert's idea with this was he wanted to try and turn Sears into like, you know, the profit isn't from the stuff you're buying. It's from the consumer data that Sears is gathering from your your store card and then selling to advertisers, mm-hmm. like literally any app or credit card does nowadays. Right. Like, literally every store does nowadays. Yeah, totally. Like, he thought that was just an original idea. What Sears had basically already been doing. Right. But the main problem with this is that no one was fucking shopping at Sears. (laughs) So. They were in in millions of dollars of debt. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, maybe if you're at your peak, making a billion dollars a year, you could try something new like that. Right, or, right, because nobody is shopping at your stupid-ass empty stores. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this Which, will work. Uh, and speaking of empty stores, in the past, Lampert has defended this strategy as he intends to turn Sears into a asset light organization. <laughs> We're not, the store's not empty, it's just asset light. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Just call it something different. Yeah. Oh yeah. We're not in debt, we're in reverse money. <laughs> we're, we're, we're having a stint of reverse profits. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he denies widespread claims that he's stripping the company of its most valuable properties <laughs> and brands, which is effectively hastening its bankruptcy. Yeah, of course he denies that. <laughs> You're not going to be like, yeah, I'm ruining the company. So like, no, I'm not ruining the company. Former and current staff members who spoke to Business Insider put the blame squarely on Lampert for destroying the American, the iconic American brand. <laughs> Man, that's harsh. It's, I, he deserves it, though. Yeah, he does he really deserve deserves it. it. <laughs> that's an appropriate punishment. He would find a hole in the, he would find a hole in the data and then explode. The video conferencing room where employees meet virtually with Lampert had become infamous for shouting matches. <laughs> Which, shouting matches is the wrong term there. Right? Yeah. It's not a shouting match, it's just Lampert having a tantrum. Yeah, <laughs> if you say the wrong trigger words or yeah, whatever. He has, I mean, like, literally, like, all those stupid, like, fucking triggered jokes. Yeah. It, literally, if you would say one of these words around Lampert, he would throw a 45-minute temper tantrum. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's, he's a man-child. Yeah. He's the, like, embodiment of what conservatives on the internet think being triggered is right right it's exactly what it is <laughs> yeah. it's like ha he would have a he would have a temper tantrum yeah. like a fucking three-year-old lose his mind oh my god <laughs> the first time a new sears vice president strolled into the room two years ago he found top managers sitting around a table burying their faces in computers he tried to introduce himself hey Hi, uh, how how are you doing? But he didn't get he didn't get much in return. I see everyone look up like, do you know where you are? <laughs> and I was like, what the hell is going on? He told Business Insider. He later understood why. Yeah, I'm sure. After the one meetings day. typically start with a presentation, and then Lampert fires off a series of questions to the presenter until he finds one that the person can't answer. Until he finds one that the presenter can't answer. He would then find a hole in the data and explode. There would be, a, <laughs> the executive said, then there would be a 45-minute rant. Yeah. This, Nothing would get done. This next section is entitled Weird Shit. <laughs> oh, boy. Before Sears and Kmart, Lampert had no experience in retail. Yeah, <laughs> The big obviously. plan, he hoped, would transform Sears into a rewards program called Shop Your Way, which the company introduced in 2009. Yeah. Uh, da, 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 I think I talked about this. Oh, no, no, no. Okay, I do have to say this. Through the program, frequent buyers would accumulate points for their Sears and Kmart purchases and then turn them into coupons and discounts. Pretty standard stuff. Yeah. One primary goal of the Shop Your Way program was to, acqui was to acquire customers' personal information and sell it to other companies. Like, literally their competitors, according to a former executive who worked at the program. There was also a social networking component on shopyourway.com oh. where members can see and comment on products that they would have that they liked and purchased. Like literally he tried to like he tried to make like a competing Facebook thing. Right. For for customers. But here's here's the like weird culty part. 
Oh boy. So it wasn't just the employees. It, like it wasn't just the shoppers. The employees also also had to make it. They were forced to make accounts on <laughs> shopyourway.com. What? It like it, oh, it was bad. Like, and that's how your managers would interact with you outside of work hours. Was they right. would message you on shopyourway.com <laughs> on your on your work social media account. Yeah. And then here's where it gets extra weird. A user who goes by the name of Eli Wexler posts frequently on the site, asking questions such as if a $2,495 handbag is too expensive or is it worth it? In 2013, Bloomberg reported that Eli Wexler was a pseudonym for Lampert himself. Oh my gosh. In February of 2016, Lampert, presumably posing as Wexler, <laughs> presumably posting as Wexler, clicked on a pair of boxing gloves and posed the question, "Does anybody have these? Will it protect my hands since I punch very hard?" <laughs> like, who talks like that? That's like serial killer weird like he's the the website he created. He's like the most There's, like frequent user of it. There was a lot of okay. There were a lot of references to stories like this, but I couldn't really find sources for them. Yeah, but they kept showing up in different articles that I was reading. Yeah, there were there were all these things where Lampert would be like, he would use, like he bas he would force everyone in the company to get on this social media website. Yeah, and he would spy on them oh with like secret accounts, and not only that. He would make he would make fake accounts, and then he would try to like start fights between his subordinates because what he was this he was this he had this weird like social Darwinist libertarian yeah. ideology where he would give he would give his subsidiaries like overlapping responsibilities. Right. So it's like you couldn't succeed unless you fucked over somebody else who you knew. It's, right. A great company culture. Right, right. Literally forcing people to be a dick to their... Yeah. Like, not just to their employees, but to their co-workers. Right. To succeed. Yeah. At the time Lampert was pushing Shop Your Way and posting on the site, employees started complaining that Sears had stopped investing in its physical stores. While we've been criticized for not investing in most of our stores, I've explained in the past that the investments in our transformation go well beyond the stores. But don't ignore the stores, Lampert wrote in a letter to his shareholders in February of 2015. At this time, the Sears were fucking crumbling. Yeah. Like, there's water damage everywhere. Right. <laughs> Here's where it starts to get sketchy. Oh, boy. Sears stopped reporting its e-commerce growth in 2014, and Shop Your Way is now a giant margin drain, according to two former executives who worked closely with the program. Right. Part of the problem is simply that Sears' clientele is generally older and less interested in online shopping. Yeah. <laughs> He's got it all set out in his mind, how he wants things to run, regardless of any type or type of value proposition, said one former employee. If Eddie thinks it's cool, it'll... and it'll position us with Amazon or whatever the young people are buying, then you just go marching towards it like a zombie. <laughs> <laughs> Interviews with dozens of store-level and corporate employers, employers over the past year yielded a common refrain, Lampert is out of touch with reality. Yeah, as we've seen. <laughs> he refuses to put a dime in updating the stores, one former vice president said. You walk in and you're embarrassed as an employee when the ceilings are leaking and the floors are cracked. <laughs> Nobody. The stores are literally crumbling. 
Nobody believes in Eddie's vision, this person said. He's just gone rogue. (laughs) (laughs) I'll do what I want. He grabs the power and runs into a corner. Oh my god. And he keeps bringing up this term. Lampert continues to assert that the retailer's in the midst of a transformation into a more asset-like organization. (laughs) Rather than a protracted liquidization that that the critics describe it as. Just like a, a uh, an old man with stage four cancer is in a transitional stage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, all right, we're we're nearing the end. We're nearing the end here. Oh, man. And this this section, this section brings up some like uh, conspiracy stuff. Okay, that's fun. So. So, Lampert has set up various businesses in a way that he has other ways to gain no matter what happens to the company. Mm. ESL holds a majority of the shares in Sears, and that stake has lost three quarters of its value since the past two years. More than $1.5 billion. Wow. So Lampert owns ESL which is an investment firm that has loaned Sears more than $1.12 billion. <laughs> so he's kind of bailing his own company out. He's bailing his own company out, but he also owns a controlling share in ESL, the investment firm that he's using to loan Sears money. Right. So he's making money off of yeah. this. <laughs> oh he's, be- he's, he's filtering money through this, and it's just going back into his own right. pocket. Right. Yeah, with which, a return of interest. Mm-hmm. Lampert and ESL could potentially seize stores and inventory if Sears can't pay its bills. That $400 million loan, for instance, is backed by the collateral of 25 stores valued at $500 million. So even if the whole thing goes belly up, he makes half a million dollars. Jeez. He's moving money from one pocket to the other. He's protected himself on all sides, one former vice president said. <laughs> the guy is a brilliant asset manager, and he's just not a retailer. Yeah. It's like, he's, it's not like he's just a bad businessman. He's defrauding you. Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> shareholders have filed suit against ESL. <laughs> yeah. For another I wonder one. why. Yeah, I wonder why. Da, 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 da. Got a lot of data here that's boring. So basically, he's really good at making himself money, but not at making the company money. Well, it, this brings up this brings up another this brings up another oh yeah his this brings up this real estate company called Seritage, mm. which is again another thing that Lampert has a controlling stake in. Of course, a controlling stake in. Yeah, and basically what he's been doing, like all those store closings, those hundreds of store closings that mm. I listed earlier, so. Guess, guess where most of that real estate was being sold to? Sears. Seritage. This, uh-huh. yeah, they were. So the Sears Corporation was selling off all uh-huh. of its real estate to Seritage, <laughs> but, but they haven't. But Seritage still owns it. Yeah. Right. And it's still like it's still a Sears. Right. right? He's carving up these enormous. It's like a mall. You know. Yeah. It's like, it's like. 
the idea seems that eventually they're going to chop these big Sears warehouses up into yeah. several stores. Right. That Seritage will then sell or rent to several different stores. Yeah. Problem is, is that they're all fucking crumbling. Yeah. Like <laughs> the structural un- integrity is not yeah. They're safe. they're they're like flooding and yeah, shit. Totally. But because of like, but because of this, it's like it's just another way that Lampert is Lampert is essentially defrauding Sears. Right. Which, it's like the insider tra- the insider trading rules here are very weird. Yeah, and it's like it's not entirely illegal. Mm-hmm. Because what the feds have to prove is that, like, we don't necessarily know. We know that all of this real estate is being sold to Seritage, yeah. i.e. Lampert, for money. Yeah. We don't know how much, though. Right. And so what the Fed has to prove is that it's being sold for under market value. Is that it's essentially, which is probably what's happening. Yeah. They just, just don't say, have that hard evidence. Yeah, they have, they have to prove that it's not a fair trade. Right. Because if that's true, that means that Lampert is committing a felony. Yeah, he's rigging the system. Yeah. Uh, and the final, our final section to cap all of this out, <laughs> is is titled "The Game Is Over." Oh no. Sears suppliers over this entire time are getting nervous and canceling orders, according to current and former employees yeah. as well as representatives of no the manufacturers. Surprise. An employee who worked out of Sears' former New York. New York City design office, which the company shut down in July, said vendors have started canceling orders because they just can't get insurance on their shipments. It's the suppliers are not selling to Sears because they don't believe Sears can sell them. Yeah. (laughs) A mid-level manager at headquarters also told Business Insider that suppliers have been canceling contracts. It's been getting really hard to do my job, this employee who works directly with Sears vendors said. A lot of vendors are discreetly cutting ties with Sears. Right. They're just, hey, are you going to ship us those washing machines again? Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> this, so, message, this message was read at 2.17. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh. All of this, industry watchers say, means chances for Sears survival have dwindled. Yeah. They're going out of business, said Van Conway, an expert in bankruptcy yeah. and debt restructuring. The snowball is 90% of the way to the bottom of the hill. Oh, so sad. That's one reason those executives look so nervous in that video conferencing room at headquarters. Yeah. While Lampert, sitting at home in Florida, keeps finding ways to plug the holes with cash infusions, one day Sears assets will run dry. And right. right now, there is no sign of a strategy that would cure the underlying business by restoring brand loyalty or sales, said Conway. The game is over. <laughs> Sears Endgame. And that, and that oh, concludes the rise and fall of the Sears Corporation. Let's bring Martinez back. Uh, he doesn't want to come back. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> he he could, could, probably couldn't save it. I. That seems to be... That seems to be why he left. Right, he right? knew was, what was coming. Well, because Lampert ba- Lampert basically left after the big after the big public scandals. Yeah, right. But my he didn't 
like it was a good PR move mm-hmm. for Lampert to resign. Yeah. Right. He he basically stepped down as CEO into like a board position. Yeah. And then eventually left a couple of years later mm-hmm. while uh, while D'Ambrosio was CEO. Right. It was, which is sort of why D'Ambrosio was CEO. It was just to like keep the public heat off of it after yeah. these like enormous credit card fraud right. scam yeah. like scandals scandals. But my theory is, is that, so just like how the investigations into this, into the fraud at the auto shops Mm -hmm. uprooted all of these, uh, you know, uprooted all of these like much deeper scandals, like these much deeper poisons in the community. My theory is that during the internal investigation that Sears did, Mm -hmm. uh, Martinez, like... Martinez saw the big picture and was right. like, this company's fucked. Totally. He's like, we can't recover from this. He saw it coming 30 years down the line. Right. And he didn't even know about Amazon and all the computing. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, he, yeah. If he would have he would have gotten out even earlier, probably, if he knew about all that. Right, right. No, because he left, he left in, like, the mid-2000s. Yeah. He, like, like, smartphones were just becoming a thing at the time. Right. He didn't, like, he didn't foresee any of that. Yeah. But he saw, because by all accounts, Martinez was a very good CEO, a very good operations officer. Yeah. Like, dude knew how to run a company, and he could, he could see the warning signs. Totally. He could see this, like, he could see it. Yes. And he fucking jumped ship as soon as he could. Totally. At the right time. Yep. Oh, man. A smart man. (laughs) What a smart man. (laughs) Well, that was great. Yeah, Thank I'm, you for I'm that. I'm glad Chris. you enjoyed that. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I had I learned a lot of stuff. I had no idea about Sears. The sad thing is, like it, I'm learning all this stuff as Sears is like shuttering its doors. Right, right. <laughs> well, I I had a ton of fun researching this. Yeah, and one, like the re again the reason I started in 1886 mm-hmm. is like remember how big Sears was. Yeah, totally. Like, if you look at it. Like, if you looked at Sears in, like, 1907 or mm-hmm. something, you would think, like, there's no way that this company could ever fail. Right. <laughs> there's just no way. Yeah. It's one of, like, especially in, like, the 60s when Sears was at its height. Yeah, its retail height. It's, there's, like, it would be like looking at Amazon today and saying, like, yeah. there's no way that this company could fail. Totally. Like, the series of mistakes that you would have to make exactly. to fuck up a company this big right. would ha- would be... You'd have to be insane. Yeah, or out of touch with reality or something. <laughs> that's, the, that's the one. <laughs> bringing it back bringing back good old Eddie boy. <laughs> Eddie boy. Oh, man. We should get him on the podcast. <laughs> Eddie Lampert, if you're listening to this, please come on the podcast. I'm oh, sure he is. What are you talking about? <laughs> Episode two, an exclusive interview with, with Eddie Lampert. We have to censor ourselves. We, we uh, get, like, killed on mic because we say consumer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it just fucking rips us apart like a like chimpanzee. A screech. Our faces get ripped off. <laughs> All right. So today I'm going to be talking about Image Movers Digital. Which is a film production company that it was owned by Disney that released two movies before closing its doors. You've seen the movie. <laughs> You've seen the movie The Polar Express. Oh, yes. Yes, I have. <laughs> does that movie, watching those characters, that animation, does that creep you out? Yes. Yes, it does. Okay. 
So I've seen a ton of people, uh, like the Polar Express, I, as you know, is a big meme in my family for right, how creepy right. that movie you is. You watch it every year. We watch it every year. Basically, we treat it as a horror movie because <laughs> it's so creepy looking. That animation is is terrifying to look at. And I thought that was just like a me thing. Like I was just like, for some reason, I was creeped out because, I don't know, for whatever, for whatever reason, it, it looked strange to me. But the more I researched this, the more I realize that everyone feels this way. Right. Everyone f- is creeped out by that motion capture animation mm-hmm. because it's so lifelike. And then the more I research it, the more I realize this has not all, this isn't just a personal taste thing. This has a scientific basis. <laughs> Tell us about that scientific <laughs> basis, Evan. All right. It all comes down to two words, the uncanny valley. Mm-hmm. So basically this is, this is a concept that is not just about animation. This goes, into robotics, into into gaming, into a lot of different things. Basically, from Wikipedia, uh, the uncanny valley is a hypothesized relationship between the degree of an object's resemblance to a human being and the emotional response to such an object. The concept of the uncanny valley suggests humanoid objects which appear almost, but not exactly, like real human beings elicit uncanny or strangely familiar feelings of eeriness and revulsion in observers. <laughs> revulsion. So basically, in animation, most Pixar films are... There's a level of the uncanny valley where the more things start to look human, the more creeped out we start to get. So why most Pixar films and most most animated films are seen as cute is because the animation stays away from that uncanny valley. Mm -hmm. If there's human beings in it, they look more cartoony and just fake enough that we see them as, you know, creations, drawings, uh, something that was created in a computer. (laughs) However, if you get more and more lifelike, you start to approach this feeling like these are robots imitating reality right right these are this is something basically the way i've heard it described online is like we see it as a threat to our humanity right like these are (laughs) robots pretending to be humans right and that's why we're terrified of it right right it's it's this idea of this is something pretending to be like me yeah and, and like it, like trying to replace us, right? Which is right. terrifying. Or, or trying to blend in so it can kill me or yeah, something. Yeah, totally. So if you see something that's perfectly lifelike, that won't elicit that feeling because you'll be tricked into thinking if the animation had progressed to a certain uh, level where you couldn't tell it from reality, you wouldn't feel it because you would just see it as reality. Right, right. But if you dip just below that level of realism, you are in this this valley where you are so terrified that you can't even place why. Right. And so just looking at these things are, is terrifying. So Wikipedia says with the increasing prevalence of virtual reality, augmented reality and photorealistic computer animation, the Valley has been cited in the popular press in reaction to the verisimilitude of the creation as it approaches indistinguishability from reality. The uncanny Valley hypothesis predicts an entity appearing almost human risks eliciting cold, eerie feelings in viewers. Okay, so having all that background, that basically scientific theories and evidence as to why that style of animation is terrifying. Right. It's scientifically terrifying. Right. Disney decided to create an entire company 
to produce <laughs> motion capture films in that style of animation. Oh my god. Okay, so this company was helmed by Robert Zemeckis. I'm going to start by giving a little bit of background on him. Mm-hmm. Robert Zemeckis, you've probably heard his name, is an American film director, film producer, and screenwriter, fe- frequently credited as an innovator in visual effects. He first came to public attention in the 80s as a director of Romancing the Stone and the science fiction comedy Back to the Future, as well as the live-action animated comedy Who Framed Roger Rabbit. In the 1990s and 2000s, he directed Death Becomes Her and then diversified into more dramatic fare, including Forrest Gump and Castaway. For Forrest Gump, he won the Academy Award for Best Director, and that film won Best Picture. So this is an accomplished filmmaker right, who's, right. who's created who's been instrumental in creating iconic films. Right. Touchstones of the American pop culture. Forrest Gump. Yeah, Forrest Gump. Back to the Future. These are staples of American cinema. And he could have continued his career. He's getting older now. But he could have continued his career directing more iconic live-action films. Mm -hmm. But Robert Zemeckis went down a strange pathway. In the year 2004... Robert Zemeckis, who had worked with Tom Hanks on both Forrest Gump and Castaway, uh, started working on a new project, The Polar Express, (laughs) based on the children's book of the same name by Chris Van Alsberg. The Polar Express utilized the computer animation technique known as performance capture, whereby the movements of the actors are captured digitally and used as the basis for the animated characters. This was revolutionary at the time. Mm-hmm. Basically, this performance capture had been used sparingly in projects like Lord of the Rings, like Gollum, like several creatures. They're used in specific characters that are not human right. to create right. something from the ground up. So basically, Robert Zemeckis was like, okay, that looks realistic in Lord of the Rings amidst all this live action stuff going around it. So I'm going to make a movie entirely with this motion capture technology. Let's make a Christmas movie where everyone is animated like Gollum. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) The Gollum. Basically... For Gollum, it works because he's supposed to be creepy. Right, he's a he's, creepy little goblin. He's man. a corrupted hobbit. Like <laughs> any, a hobbit is not even a, a human. Like right. it's right. like taking something that's not human and making it less human. That technology works. The motion capture works, and you don't even think twice. And Zemeckis is like Christmas movie. Yeah, <laughs> let's make a, a children's family Christmas movie. Oh God! <laughs> With Tom Hanks playing several characters. Right, like. Damn near every character. Yeah. He plays the main boy, which is a recurring theme of this having like adult actors play children it's using motion capture. Really weird. And several media outlets praised this animation at least before the film was released. Mm-hmm. Uh, the New York Times wrote that whatever critics and audiences make of this movie, from a technical perspective, it could mark a turning point in a, the gradual transition from an analog to a digital cinema. Oh, it marks a turning point, all <laughs> <Yeah>. right. <laughs> so basically, like, people were predicting every movie would be filmed oh in, pr- in motion capture. Can you imagine? <laughs> they, were, they were like, okay, this will change cinema. That we won't have to, like, film on location. We won't have to... We can just film oh, everything. God. Because filming something with motion capture is much easier than right. filming, like, having to go to New Zealand and film in real... Because right, you can create right. everything from the ground up. I mean, all that CGI has to be expensive. Like, digital oh. artists are expensive. It's incredibly expensive, but it's easier, and it's it's less time-consuming. Oh, you can right. be incredibly efficient. You can film everything in, like, ten days on a studio. Ah. And you can have 
a third of the amount of actors. Like, you can have Tom Hanks play four different people. Right. You Indeed you can. So, <laughs> basically, it was expensive at the time, so they were predicting it would get more efficient, cheaper, as the technology developed. Right, right. However, once the film was released, it, it, it debuted to mixed reviews, but a lot of people heavily criticized the performance capture. And basically stated they felt the same feelings of revulsion and terror that the uncanny valley theory hypothesizes. Don't know what it is about Tom Hanks in this movie, yeah. but it reminds me of Gollum? <laughs> yeah, of Gollum and of like robots replacing us. <laughs> so okay, so I'm going to read some of the reviews that drew attention to the uh, uncanny valley like at the time, the Uncanny Valley wasn't even, like, a popular theory. So right. basically, people had to use their own words to describe this terror they were feeling Ooh. before there was scientific basis for this. Interesting. Peter Travers of the Rolling Stone gave the film one out of four stars and called it a failed and lifeless experiment in which everything goes wrong. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> uh, Stephanie Zacharek of Salon gave the film 1.5 stars and said, I could probably have tolerated the incessant jitteriness of the Polar Express if the look of it didn't give me the creeps. Jeff Pavir of the Toronto Star said, If I were a child, I'd have nightmares. Come to think of it, I did anyway. <laughs> this movie was giving like well-established movie reviewers nightmares. Paul Clinton from C CNN called it at best disconcerting and, a, and at worst a wee bit horrifying. This is, like, this is like the closest thing that we have... Like in modern, this is the closest thing that modern society has to a curse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like the, Robert Zemeckis effectively cursed several million people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Gave people nightmares, and like people were still predicting this would be like a turning point in cinema. <laughs> Newsday <laughs> eventually every movie will be cursed. <laughs> no. <laughs> Newsday reviewer, can you imagine if that was the reality of every like? Oh, <laughs> well, no, no. This is this is just the this is just like the prep for the movie. The real movie is the nightmares that yeah, you have exactly. Afterwards. Yeah, That's the real movie. The movie is planting the seed, and like the real movie. <laughs> Newsday it's reviewer for every viewer. <laughs> John Anderson called the film's characters creepy and dead-eyed, and wrote that the Polar Express is a zombie train, which they were. Yeah, and, and this, it was. these are major media outlets saying basically this is a zombie movie masquerading as a kid's movie <laughs> right. uh basically animation director ward jakins wrote an online analysis describing how changes to the polar express character's appearance especially to their eyes and eyebrows could have avoided what he considered a feeling of deadness in their faces so basically they people didn't have the words for it but they're like we need to like not make movies in this uncanny valley we right. need to be incredibly careful into making sure we avoid this uncanny valley phenomenon because it's just going to drive away viewers. Right, you either need to go all the way through to photorealism yeah. or you need or you need to uh, you need to stop before you hit the valley and right. make sure that it's stylized. Exactly. Robert Zemeckis did not listen to these reviews. Okay, so Ugh. The Polar Why Express. Why do you say that happened? What happened? <laughs> well, <laughs> let me tell you. Um, the Polar Express, despite uh, its mixed reviews and its accusations of being creepy, opened at number two at the box office. It made $310 million on a $165 million budget. Now, that's not great. That's yeah. a moderate success. You like made the, rule, the rule is doubling your money. Right? Yeah, basically. So they, they didn't even double their money. And even, I learned this recently, like, the number... The three hundred and ten million uh, 
that you the number like the box office revenue that you see a movie make is not the amount of money the studio makes. Right. About half that money goes to the exhibitors, the theater chains. Right. Right. So basically, they only made probably a, a like a couple dozen million on its initial release. They probably made more. Uh, once it was sold to home video and stuff. So it was a moderate financial success. Right, right. Like, it, it wasn't a failure. Yeah, it wasn't a failure. They made some money. Okay, so based on that success, mm-hmm. in February 2007, Robert Zemeckis and Walt Disney Studios chairman Dick Cook announced plans for a new performance capture film company devoted to creating motion entirely motion capture movies. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> uh Basically, Zemeckis had a, a movie company called Image Movers, and he, with Disney, he created this new branch of the company called Image Movers Digital, which was going to be dedicated to creating these entirely motion capture movies. It was decided that Zemeckis would direct most of the projects, and Disney would distribute the films, and this they would create just a ton of different projects, right. adaptations of children's right. books, remakes of things. Pump them out. But in the motion capture style. Okay. So... Uh, as uh, Image Movers Digital was getting established, before the company was even open, right. Robert Zemeckis made another motion capture movie just on with his own company. <laughs> this was the movie Beowulf, based on the Anglo-Saxon epic poem of the same name. The film was released on November 16, 2007 to mixed to positive reviews from critics. It was not commercially successful. So I, I can see that, because <laughs> I've never heard of it. Yeah. Uh, the like as the Polar Express was a moderate success, this was a definitive failure. Uh, it made a hundred ninety-six million dollars on a hundred and fifty million dollar budget. Oh, so that's, that's a definitive loss. In uh, a review of the two thousand of the movie, New York Times technology writer David Gallagher wrote that the film failed the Uncanny Valley test, stating that the film's villain was only slightly scarier than the film's hero. <laughs> So basically, the same reviews. Oh God! The same level of terror, and the the movie didn't even make money, so they didn't even have that level right. like assurance. All right. So after that, after Beowulf was released, Image Movers Digital was in full swing. They hired over four hundred animators to work oh. full time oh, no. <laughs> creating these fully motion capture movies for Image Movers and Disney for the digital branch. Oh, no. uh, in July 20, 2007, Variety announced that Robert Zemeckis had written a screenplay for A Christmas Carol based on Charles Dickens' 1843 short story of the same name, with plans to use performance capture and produce it through Image Movers Digital. Uh, Zemeckis wrote the script with Jim Carrey in mind, and Carrey agreed to play, once again, multiple roles in the film, oh, including boy. Scrooge as a young, middle, and old man, and all three ghosts who, ghosts who haunt Scrooge. So the same basic, <laughs> the same basic uh, business plan as the Polar Express, uh, the film began production in February 2008 and was released on November, to the, November 6, 2009 to mixed reviews. Some reviewers criticized its animation as creepy. No surprise. I think I remember that movie. I remember. Oh I yeah, I remember seeing that movie. Oh yeah, and it was. I do remember it as super creepy. Totally. Was it supposed to be creepy? I mean, it was sub- obviously like a Christmas Carol is supposed to have some creepy elements. Right, right. But at the same time, this is a Disney movie. It's supposed to be endearing. I remember the crypt, the clips that I. I watched just that. I didn't even want to see it. The clips I saw were terrifying to me. I I remember. 
I remember confusing the, like, Jim Carrey's Scrooge character with the Crypt Keeper. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I thought they were, like, the same character when I was little. It looks terrifying. And this is a Disney movie, like, adapting, like, a, a classic Christmas story. Right. Uh, Joe Newmeyer of the New York Daily News said of the film, The motion capture does no favors to co-stars Gary Oldman, Colin Firth, and Robin Wright. Since, as in the Polar Express, the animated eyes never seem to focus. Oh, God. And for all the photorealism, when characters get wiggly-limbed and bouncy, as in standard Disney cartoons, it's off-putting. Oh, that's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, that is terrifying. That's so scary. Yeah. So basically, that's like the whole like theory of the Uncanny Valley. They're trying to do what tr- like traditional animation does, but with like near-photorealistic characters. Well, the, the implication there is that... like. They're animated like normal characters most of the time, right? Yeah. But then they get all wiggly and bouncy, which implies that they are only pretending to yeah, have bones. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, it's the same theory. It's like, these are things pretending to be human. These are not human beings. Right. Uh, Mary Elizabeth Williams of Salon.com wrote of the film, In the center of the action is Jim Carrey, or at least a dead-eyed, doll-like version of Carrey. So, like, literally, you're taking, like, creepy oh, versions of, like well-known stars that are pretending to be the well-known stars that that makes it like extra yeah exactly so these are people like you know and love and like robot people pretending to be them right right because it wasn't it wasn't just like scrooge played by jim carrey they made scrooge look like jim carrey exactly so that's terrifying (laughs) so it's like it's like this weird alien that's just pretending to have bones yeah exactly thinks that thinks that Jim Carrey is what a normal yeah, human looks exactly. like. And then failing at that. Yeah, it's Jim Carrey's evil doppelganger who's like <laughs> invaded our homes into like a, cra- a classic Christmas story. you to steal Christmas. Yeah. Okay, so despite its cri- criticism, A Christmas Carol made $325 million on a budget of $200 million, A moderate success. Yeah, that's not bad. And that was most likely because it was a well-known story. It had a very well-known A-list actor of Jim Carrey and other well-known actors in it. Right, Colin Firth. So, and it was released during Christmas, marketed by Disney. Of course, it's going to be a moderate success. Right, right. Disney like marketed the hell out of that. So, <laughs> that was Image Mover Digital's first movie. Mm-hmm. First movie produced entirely through uh, Image Movers Digital. But, but you told me at the beginning of the episode that they only made two. So, what was the next movie? <laughs> the next film, based on the moderate success of Disney's A Christmas Carol. Image Movers Digital gained the confidence to produce 2011's Mars Needs Moms. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> All right, so Mars Needs Moms had an enormous budget, but it was troubled right out of the gate. First of all, unlike A Christmas Carol, it featured no big stars. Its biggest star was Seth Green, the creator <laughs> of Robot Chicken. <laughs> and not only that, he was originally supposed to be the lead of the movie. He was going to provide the motion capture and the voice for the f- uh, film's protagonist, who was a 12-year-old boy. This is a 35-year-old man. What? Why? <laughs> I don't what? know why he was chosen as the lead, and he was chosen to play a 12-year-old boy, but Disney, for like halfway through production, panicked and realized, we can't have this 35-year-old man voice a 12-year-old boy. We need to replace him. So, right, well, and not just a 35-year-old man, a 35-year-old man who is famous for making, like, action figures say fuck. Yeah, exactly. Like, He's not going to appeal to families whatsoever. Yeah. Exactly. So, at halfway through production, after uh, Seth Green had recorded all the lines and done all the motion capture, Disney 
said you cannot do the voice, so they quickly replaced him with like a child actor. Oh, they, they pulled a Shrek. Yeah, they pulled exactly. What do you mean pull like? Well, they they didn't they have like Chris Farley or something record oh, all yeah. the lines for Shrek exactly. and then they panned him at the last minute. Well, that's the thing about animated movies; you can just even if they recorded all the lines, it's so you can get those lines done in two days. Right, right. So basically, Seth Green's voice was taken out of the movie, and it, he he still did the motion capture for the vo- boy, but his voice was replaced with a child actor. That's weird. That's <laughs> yeah. weird. Which makes it even creepier because it's like an adult using a child's voice, but with an adult's movements. Well, yeah, it's like <laughs> it's like a. That's so weird. Yeah, it's like an adult piloting a child. It's like a, an adult puppeting a yeah. child's body, which is with the, same the voice thing, of a child. The same thing that the Polar Express did. Right. But at least it was Tom Hanks. Right. <laughs> right. America's right. dad. Right. And and quite possibly one of the, like the best living actor. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and then you have Seth Green, who's not even doing the voice. He's the lead. Of, he's the the biggest actor of the movie. Right. But he's a B actor from Adult Swim. Well, and he's not, and he's a voice actor. He, yeah. He he's a do... voice actor. He's famous for. And so he's just doing like the movements of the child. <sighs> and, and, and as his first role, they're like, "Here, be like a marionette for a child yeah. body." <laughs> okay. So not only did it not have any big stars. The film was not based on any well-known source material, unlike A Christmas Carol, or a Polar... Even A Polar Express has a more well-known book. Right, I read the book. Yeah. It's based on an obscure book uh, from the early 2000s called Mars Needs Moms, which no one has ever read. (laughs) Okay. So, Mars Needs Moms was released on March 11th, 2011. Despite its enormous budget, it opened at number five at the box office. Which is not good for a Disney film. Not good. Not <laughs> it, good. All the four films that beat it at its opening weekend had significantly lower budgets than Mars Needs Moms. Do you know what they are? Uh, yeah, I could look it up really quick. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm really curious to see what beat it. Yeah, I'm sure not even that great of movies. All right, let's look. Because I know that there was like there was a movie that came out the the day that Star Wars was released uh-huh. that was actually really good. It, right. It, like, oh God, I forget was I forget what it was called, but it was like this sci-fi movie. And right. It, it would have been an, it would have been like a classic uh-huh. had it not come out the same weekend. Right. As Star exactly. Wars. <laughs> okay, so it was beat out by the Adjustment Bureau, uh, Red a live action Red Riding Hood, which oh, I don't man. even remember. Was that one of those like mockbusters? Wh- whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah. Ones. Uh, number two was Rango. Rango. Yeah, I can see that beating it out in its second week. Rango had opened in Rango's the pre- second yeah. week. <laughs> Number one, Battle Los Angeles, just like a throwaway action. Oh movie. god, I've seen that. Is yeah. it the Rock in it? Yeah, I think so. I don't even remember. <laughs> but yeah, that opened at number how one. Do, how do I know that? That that movie had a budget of seventy million dollars. Mars Needs Mom has had a budget of hundred and fifty million dollars. Oh my god! And that does not even include marketing. That's just the production right. budget. <laughs> so, already right, off to a bad start. All right, so. Obviously, Mars Needs Moms was a horrendous box office failure. Right. Uh, it is the worst financial loss ever for a Disney movie. Wow. Yeah. Quite the honor. It had the 21st worst opening weekend for a film ever. Ever. For a wide release film. Adjusted for inflation, considering the total net loss of money, it is the fourth largest box office disappointment in history. Wow. For any movie. Oh my god. <laughs> 
Brooks Barnes of the New York Times commented that it was rare for a Disney-branded film to do so badly. With the reason for its poor underperformance being the subject, the movie is about a mother kidnapped for, from her child. <laughs> the child has to like fight Martians to save his mom, which I guess is just the plot of Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius. Uh, it kind of is. <laughs> but it's also a Disney movie. It has like a, a troubling plot. I knew it was bad. I didn't know it was that yeah, bad. Yeah, exactly. Um, another re- It was another reason... Uh, for the box office uh, failure was thought to be the Uncanny Valley animation <laughs> and the incredibly negative word of mouth on social networks. <laughs> so this movie opened in 2011. This was like the peak of Twitter. Yeah, so this yeah. is when families do not go see this movie. It's creepy looking. It's, it has like an upsetting plot for children. <laughs> There's no stars that you'll recognize. It's not based on any any story that people will recognize. Right. Oh god. Okay, so Barnes concluded in his review critics and audiences alike with audiences voicing their opinions on twitter blogs and other social media complain that the zemeckis technique can result in character facial expressions that look unnatural another common criticism was that mr zemeckis focuses so much on technological wizard wizardry that he neglects storytelling so basically (laughs) yeah and that wizardry really paid off for him didn't it so the film has a crappy story, right. and then the technological wiz- wizardry is scaring everyone off because <laughs> it's scientifically proven that it causes revulsion in viewers. It's just making the curse more yeah. powerful. <laughs> exactly. So, unsurprisingly, and the funny part is, like, I always thought that because of the financial uh, failure of this movie, that's what caused Disney to shut down Image Movers Digital. However, oh. I learned that... Disney made the decision to shutter the company before the production of the movie had finished. They what? realized how terribly this movie was going to do. They were trying to kill it. They were trying to kill it, basically. So how did how did they even fi- how did they even finish and release it? I don't know. They just like they had it most of it filmed. So much money went into it. They're like, right, we right. might as well release it, which is like a sad reality of of movies. It's like we filmed it. We might as well release it. We know it'll do horribly. Um, so on March 12, 2010, uh, Disney and Image Movers announced announced that Image Movers Digital would close operations by January 2011 after production on Mars Needs Moms was completed. Disney knew how poorly the film would do, and it was amazing that they even gave it the green light in the first place. Yeah, seriously. Basically, I think it was just because of the moderate success of The Polar Express and A Christmas Carol. Right, right. But... There's so many differences in those movies. Those movies are based on well-known Christmas stories with A-list actors. And they're Christmas movies. Right, right. Mars Needs Mom... They just, like, thought that that formula would apply to anything regardless of who's in the movie. Right, like, maybe they can get enough ticket sales in before the reviews start popping up. Yeah, exactly. Or something. And then they, they always marketed these films on, like, how great they looked. And, like, the look is scaring people off. Right, right. (laughs) All right, the closing of the company resulted in a layoff of approximately 450 employees. Basically, in one day, 450 people lost their job. Right. Uh, Walt Disney Studios president Alan Bergman said, Given today's economic realities, we need to find alternative ways to bring creative content to audiences, and Image Movers Digital no longer fits into our business model. Which, basically, it never did. They made one (laughs) moderately successful film and decided to kill the company before their second film was even finished filming. And it it wasn't even, like... It wasn't even, like... uh, 
like a, a business move or anything. It wasn't no. like a cynical business move. It was just like we need to kill this. Yeah, we're gonna lose hundreds of millions of dollars, and they did just by releasing Mars Needs Moms. They lost, I think it was one hundred and fifty million dollars that Disney lost. Oh my god! Yeah. Um, so uh, the comp when it closed, the company had been working on four different movies: a Yellow Submarine remake, a Robert uh, oh, Roger Rabbit sequel. Uh, oh a nut, Nutcracker adaptation and like one more. Imagine, like, just imagine this studio doing yellow, like the yeah. psychedelic yellow right. submarine. That, that would have be been terrifying. A nightmare. Yeah, that would exactly. Be an absolute nightmare. Right. So all the four movies were in development at this studio, which are incredibly expensive expensive to make. They were all killed following the box office failure of Mars Needs Moms, and Image Movers Digital closed forever. So that's the end of that company. And since then, Robert Zemeckis, through his main company, just the regular Image Movers, it continues to operate. It's released several films since then, but it has never released any uh, entirely stop mo- or motion capture films. However, Robert uh, Zemeckis' 2018 film, which just came out a month ago, Welcome to Marwin, starring Steve Carell, featured heavy use of the performance capture technology. No. And not just sparingly, like, entire scenes were filmed in motion no. capture to represent the character's, like, imagination or whatever. No. So, Welcome to Marwin opened on December 21st of last year and received incredibly negative reviews from critics. A.A. Dowd of the AV Club said the film strands a fascinating true story in the uncanny valley and called it the weirdest and one of the worst films of Zemeckis' career. Oh, wow. This movie had a $40 million budget, more modest than the the films he did with Disney. It opened at number nine at the box office. Oh, God. (laughs) It did even worse. Let's look up what films beat Welcome to Marwin. I I remember seeing the trailer for that. Yeah. And thinking, like, oh, this looks kind of interesting. Right. But then... Like, after it came out, I asked you about it, and you said, no, 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 no. no. (laughs) Yeah, because it's that motion capture that is terrifying. Okay, so Welcome to Marwin opened at number nine its first weekend. It was beat by Ralph Breaks the Internet in its fifth week. Oh, God, that's bad. (laughs) It was beat by the movie, like, an indie movie called Second Act. It was beat by Dr. Seuss's The Grinch in its seventh week. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's embarrassing. That's really sad. In number, f- it also was beat by uh, Clint Eastwood's The Mule in its second week, Into the Spider Verse in its second week, and it was also released the same weekend as Bumblebee, Mary Poppins Returns, and Aquaman. <laughs> oh man, it had, it had no chance. Yeah, it had, it just no, had chance. no chance. Exactly, and the horrible critics' reviews and the continued revulsion from the motion capture technology did not help its prospects uh, and its incredible competition. Why did he think that yeah. was a good idea? I don't know. Um, so, so far, after a month in theaters, it has made $10 million on its $40 million budget. Oh, God. Which is basically, I mean, it's, it, did, it didn't lose as much money as Mars Needs Moms, but it's equivalent in ratios to that level of loss. Right, right. It made back a fourth of its production budget, not even cl- including <laughs> marketing. All right, and so that's another blow to Robert Zemeckis' weird fetish for motion capture technology, but I will not be surprised if he continues to indulge his weird obsession with the technology and continues to make the whole world suffer for it. And that is the failure of 
motion capture technology in general and the company Image Movers oh, Digital. Bravo, bravo. <laughs> Thank you. Well done. All right, that basically that basically ties up the show. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Right. I hope you liked it. We hope to do more episodes in the future. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot to talk about. Thank you, and.